You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together this morning and we turn to the Gospel according to John chapter 20. We'll read the first 18 verses. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she replied, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. I preach to you this morning from the book of Revelation, chapter 1, the verses 17 and 18. When I, meaning John, saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he, meaning the Son of Man, placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death 
and Hades. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, it is Easter morning and everywhere around the world, the joyful cry rings out, Christ is risen, hallelujah, risen, our victorious head. Today, as members of the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, we may celebrate, we may rejoice, Our Savior died but rose again triumphant from the grave. Why, the case can even be made that this is the greatest of all days. Christmas may be known for its manger. Good Friday is known for its cross. Ascension is known for its hands, its departing hands of Christ stretched out in blessing. And Pentecost is known for its dove and its tongues of fire. Easter, however, is known for its empty, open tomb. And truly, beloved, what could be greater than that? What is more astounding than the news that death has been defeated, that the grave has been conquered? Truly, this represents a wonder. Beyond all compare. Yes, and the Apostle John would no doubt agree. For months now, we have been making our way through the book of Revelation that John was led to write. And in it, we have come across all sorts of things. Many are mysterious, perplexing, confusing, and even confounding. But there are also many things there that are clear, comforting, and compelling. And one of those things has to do with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. John mentions it early. You find it back in chapter 1. For there Jesus, as the Son of Man, says to John, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Now, does that not sound like Easter? Is that not a most marvelous description of our risen and triumphant Lord? Beloved, let's take a closer look at these wonderful words. I preach to you on the theme, the living one. Look at what I was, he says. Look at what I am. And look at what I hold. So what was our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? He tells John and us very simply and starkly, I was dead. Of course, John knew immediately what the Lord Jesus was referring to. After all, John wrote not just the book of Revelation, but also one of the Gospels. And in that Gospel, he writes all about the life and the death and the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. He covers all the major events. He records the best words. He reports on the greatest deeds. Yes, and among all of those deeds was also his deed of dying. It is covered in considerable detail in chapter 19. 
And there we come across such things as he bowed his head and gave up his spirit, verse 30. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. And one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. And later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. And taking the body, the two of them, Joseph and Nicodemus, wrapped it up. Indeed, as far as John is concerned, there is no doubt whatsoever that Jesus was dead. He died. His life and his ministry are over. It is finished in more ways than one. And he is not alone in that estimation. The other gospel writers, and you can read that as well, they all concur. They leave not one speck of doubt. But you know there is doubt. There are still people today, and some call themselves even experts and scholars, who say that Jesus didn't die. He only fainted, or he went into some kind of a coma. Or he lived on and on somewhere in obscurity and the early church fabricated and invented this huge legend about him really dying. But yet, beloved, that's not the testimony of Holy Writ. The Bible declares in countless places over and over again that he died. He was really and truly dead. And some will even resort to a bit of medical diagnosis and tell you that the combination of blood and water that came out of his body was proof that the spear had pierced his pericardium, the sac around his heart, and probably his heart as well. Whatever the case may be, The Bible is not in doubt when it comes to his death. And neither is he. For notice here in our text, he comes to John and says very clearly to John, I was dead. He either died of a heart attack or he died as a result of exhaustion and scourging. Whatever the case may be, He was dead. But then if we are told that he was dead, we're also told why he died. And no, he he didn't die for any crimes. He was not a political revolutionary. Neither was he a religious blasphemer, nor was he any kind of a military threat, at least not directly. Now, it was, as Peter would later tell the crowd, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him 
to the cross. You see, Jesus died, Peter says, by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. So we ask, what was God's purpose? It was, to put it very simply, that one man would die for human sin. You may recall way, way back in the Garden of Eden, God had warned Adam and Eve not to eat from the tree, for in the day that you eat of it, he said, you will surely, surely die. But eat they did. And in due time, Adam and Eve Eve died. In due time, everyone now dies. It's interesting, you read, for example, Genesis chapter 5. And there is a refrain in Genesis 5 that we often overlook. It goes like this. And then he died. It comes at the end of verse 5, verse 8, verse 11, verse 14, 17, 20, 27. All of Adam and Eve's descendants died. You might say, what about Enoch? Well, he too died and was taken. Or he was taken... And he also died. And beloved, we are still dying today. We are still experiencing almost every day the consequences of the fall into sin. How many times do we not stand by an open grave? How many funerals do we not attend? So we die. And Jesus also died. But nevertheless, there is something radically different about his death. For a while, it is eminently personal. It is also representative. That means it was also for others. It wasn't just for himself. It was for others to pay for their sins. It was to pay for our sins. You know, beloved, never forget that it were your sins and and my sins that ultimately nailed him to the cross. You can't simply blame the Jews. No, we all are to blame. He didn't have any sins. We, however, have all kinds of sins. All kinds of sins that condemn us. All kinds of sins that cry out for justice and restitution and punishment. His death, you see, was really our death. His dying was really our dying. It was for us.
for each and every one of us in our place. But then, beloved, if there is death here in our text, there is also life. And indeed, I might add, there is abundant life for Christ continues. He says to John, I was dead. But then he goes on and declares, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. In other words, he's saying that his state has completely changed. He was dead. But now he lives. He says, look at what I was. I was dead. But now look at what I am. I am alive. And then he adds those words, I am the living one. And you know, is that not something that John goes on at length about in his gospel too, in the chapters 20 and 21? They're all about the living one. First, we read about how he appeared to Mary Magdalene. And, you know, with with one word, he forever changed her life. All he said to her was, Mary. And she knew. And after her are many more women and many more disciples and even doubters like Thomas. And so many other people, as Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 15. And of course, I realize that today, too, about this, we have our doubters. There are those who say he never really died, and there are those who say that he never really rose again. Some claim the disciples stole his body. So his resurrection was a lie, a fabrication. But who, in his right mind, goes on to suffer and even to die or lie. If the resurrection did not radically change those weak need disciples, what did? A fraud, a lie would never have ignited those men and caused them to launch a movement that would change the world. Others allege that the priests or the Romans stole the body. But you know, that doesn't make any sense either. For then, when the news of Jesus' resurrection first made the rounds, they would have produced the body, they would have put it on display, and they would have said, come to our open house. Come and see the body of the dead Jesus. But there is no body to display. And then, too, there are those who claim that the tombs must have been mixed up. The disciples, after all, got up rather early in the morning. And sometimes when you get up rather early in the morning, you're not really awake, right? So instead of going to the right tomb, they went to the wrong tomb. But, you know, on further reflection, that, too, doesn't wash. The tomb was well known. The angels, by the way, were there and declared he's not here, he's risen. And the strips of linen and the headcloth were there as well. All the evidence was there. 
And so, beloved, the doubters will keep on doubting. But the scriptures do not doubt. They're perfectly consistent, endlessly persistent, and emphatically insistent. They're clear. They affirm that Jesus lives. I am alive forever and ever. Oh, and what music there is in those words. The benefits and the blessings here for us are endless and astounding. For you know, his rising proves that at last our redemption has been accomplished. Would the Father have raised the Son if he had failed to meet the divine demands? Would the Spirit have raised him if he was not a complete and perfect Savior? Would the church be praising him if he had not really obtained our righteousness and opened the door to eternal life? We have a risen, confirming Savior. Yes, and that fact means not just redemption accomplished. It also means we are now a risen people. Because you know, more than anything else, His resurrection affirms our resurrection. Oh, it's true, if he doesn't return soon, we will still all die. If he doesn't return in the next 100 years, probably, unless there are a few exceptions, but all of us will be in the grave. However, it will not be a dying that lasts forever that swallows us up, and that means the end of all life and living. But for those who are in Christ by faith, it means death has become like a portal, like walking through a door into a splendid mansion. We walk through it, And we enter into glory. You remember the Lord Jesus had some really great news for that criminal crucified beside him. He said, today, you will be with me in paradise. Today, my friend, right away, you will join me in glory. Paradise awaits for all who believe in him. And so, beloved, a risen Lord means redemption accomplished. We are a risen people. And it also means something else. It means that already now we can be and should be a new life, people. You know, sometimes there are those who dismiss the fact that believers are arisen people by saying that, 
Ah, you know, that's all so distant, so far away, so, so pie in the sky like. We want something that makes a difference now. Today. Well, beloved, does the resurrection of Jesus Christ not do that for you? Does it not put a spring in your step? Does it not put a smile on your face and a song in your heart? I would say that knowing the living one today gives a whole different meaning and coloring and perspective to living today. I'll give you an example. The other day I was talking to one of you, and you're here, so you can confirm it. And you mentioned that you were not going to go to a stag ad in Osoyoos this summer. You said, I'm not going because it's going to be a three-day drunk. Now, what does that tell you? It tells you that there are so many people out there today living what I would call the low life. They're bored. Bored with their work. Bored with their toys. Bored with life. And it shows. They live for the weekend. And for its drugs. Parties. Alcohol and sex. They've nothing else to live for but for every vain ounce of pleasure that they can somehow squeeze out of this life. It really is for these people, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And that's it. But that's not us. We who believe have a living Lord. We who believe have a living hope. Our motto is eat, drink, be merry. For tomorrow we live. Yes, we live in the light of Easter. Of a risen Lord. Of a glorious future. And because we do, we no longer live the low life, and we no longer identify with the low people, but we are high and raised people, people who seek the things that are above, you remember, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And so we are a new life people, thanks to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But then, beloved, one final thing briefly. Our text is not just about dying and rising. It's also about holding. Our Savior says one final thing. He says, I hold the keys of death in Hades. Now, those two are loaded words. What does it mean that Christ holds the key of death in Hades? 
And what does that have to do with us? Well, for an answer, actually, we have to go back to the Old Testament. And yes, for the Old Testament, for so many of the answers in the book of Revelation are to be found back in the Old Testament. In this case, you have to go back to Isaiah chapter 22, where in the verses 20 and following, Isaiah refers to a certain man by the name of Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. And he quotes God as saying about this particular man, I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. From those kind of words, we conclude that Eliakim was a kind of important figure in the court of King David. He's important because he has a certain key. As a matter of fact, he has apparently the only key. He alone can give you access to the king. If he opens the door, it's open and you can go in and you can talk to the king. If he closes the door, sorry, forget about it. You're not going in. Well, notice here in Revelation 1, Christ Jesus applies these particular words to himself. Only he raises the stakes. For notice he's not talking about giving or denying access to the king, but he's talking about giving or denying access to death and to Hades. Now what's that? We know what death is, but what's Hades? Well, Hades here is not hell. Hades actually here is a reference to the grave. So notice what Christ Jesus is claiming here. He's claiming to be the one, the only one who has the keys to death and grave. He's claiming to be the one who can open the way to death and close it. He can open the grave and close it. In other words, he's the death controller. He's the one who has our life and our future in his hands. He's the absolutely sovereign one. Yes, and he backs that up with another expression. Earlier in verse 17, he declared, I am the first and the last. And you know, beloved, that too comes from the prophecies of Isaiah. Isaiah 41, I the Lord with the first of them and with the last I am he. Chapter 44, I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me there is no God. I am he, I am the first and the last. You see, in the Old Testament, God the Father represents himself as being in control of all things. The beginning and the end of everything. But in the New Testament, it is now Jesus Christ who is in control of everything. To the expressions, I am the light of the world, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the door, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You need to add one more, I am, one more, ego, I, me, I am the first and the last. 
So the picture that emerges is Christ Jesus, glorious, controlling death and the grave, controlling all of time. He controls the beginning and the end of everything and everyone. Your life, my life, your future, my future, your days, my days, your living, my living, your dying, my dying. It is all in his hands. Imagine that. What a power. What an awesome, mind-boggling, earth-shaking, fearsome power. And yet, in the face of all of that, we need not fear. Not if we believe in him. Not if he is our Savior and our Lord. Look at John. The Apostle John is overwhelmed at the sight of the Son of Man. He writes, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. People would say, Jesus Christ is the Son of Man. Scared the wits out of John. He fainted on the spot. So what happened next? A hand reached out to him. What hand? Whose hand? It's the hand of Jesus. Then he placed his right hand on me. And along with his hand, there is his voice. He says, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Well, beloved, with that glorious news ringing in your ear, what more do you need? What more do any of us need? What better way is there to face life's struggles, life's uncertainties, life's challenges, life's sorrows, than with this affirmation, do not be afraid. Fear not. The living one is with us. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.